Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Premier Crew. Um, usual format for today, it's, uh, it's three, we're going to have three wines on show. It's just Hugo and myself. Uh, we've got a white and two reds. The whites from France, uh, from the uh, Languedoc. We've got two reds from Italy, but they're both very, very different. Um, we'll come on to that in a little bit. Brooks, how's it going? Mate, I am very, very well. Um, it's, it's, it's a chilly winter's morning. Uh, I've bloody, got bloody freezing. Yeah, and I got the turtleneck on uh, as a result. Um, but I had a really, really good week. Um, lots of exercise. And we've been to a couple of cool tastings as well. Yeah, we've had a had a busy week so far of tastings. We've got more to go. We, um, we do, which indeed. Which is exciting. But yeah, yeah, the first one on Tuesday. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so it was with a company um, called Sustainable Wine Solutions, which we're very excited will be our guest on the next podcast. Um, and essentially, you know, their name's very apt because what they provide are sustainable wine solutions. So things like wine on tap to reduce the carbon footprint of distributing wines to consumers. Uh, and it was really, really interesting to sort of actually see the the, the products uh, in real life uh, and just to get a real sense of them. I, I guess we won't ruin that because that will be on uh, for next week. But then we also went to uh, a great evening tasting that evening with Honest Grapes. Yeah, really cool tasting with um, with with Honest Grapes. They they essentially run for for their for the, some of their members. They essentially run sort of I don't know monthly, quarterly tastings where they showcase wines that they're looking to get on their books essentially. But all the members can try the wines and rate them before Honest Grapes then decide whether to include them in their portfolio. Um, and then they'll basically go off all the uh, user feedback, if you like. Um, and then decide which which ones to buy. I just think it's quite a cool. I don't think there's many wine merchants who are doing that, and it's just quite a cool way of engaging your customers in what you're doing and making sure that the wines that you're including your, in your portfolio are wines that your consumer is yeah. going to want to drink. And you can actually sell. Yeah, um, yeah, and actually the wines the wines are really good. I, I'm not sure they're wanting to be looking at your scores, mate. But <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. Um, I thought they were they were amazing. And also yeah. the thing for me across the the board, I think we tried 23 or 28 different wines that evening. Um, all French, but they were uh, well, except for a few, couple, ger- except for a few Germans. German ones. But that was described as uh, Eastern France by Nathan, who's who's co-founder of the business. Um, but yeah, I thought they're all just really, really good value across the board as well. Um, and yeah, just a really fun evening. Yeah, yeah, uh, I echo that completely. Speaking of tasting, mm. I mean, we should get stuck straight into to what we've got here today. Yeah, yeah, let's go for it. So, first wine we've got today is a white wine. Um, We'll come on to the, the grapes in a minute because it's a bit of a funny story behind that. But essentially, it's a white wine from southern France, from the Languedoc. Um, for people that don't know, there's Languedoc-Roussillon, and they're often kind of, they're a pair, and they're kind of described as a pair. They're slightly different regions. So Languedoc's in the south of France, running from Provence all the way southwest to the Pyrenees. Um, and then you've got Roussillon that sits at the sort of southwest corner of that. But I think for today, we're just going to kind of focus on Languedoc as a... <clears throat> as a whole and essentially Lang- languedoc is known as a hub of really good value wine for the right reasons and i think the wrong reasons essentially historically it's sort of been seen as not producing the, the best wines or the best quality wines across the region they can often just be cheap and cheerful you know bulk bulk shipments a lot of cooperatives just focused on uh, on quantity rather than quality um, but what's really really exciting it's an area that's Due to sort of reduced land prices um, because of oversupply, historical oversupply and a sort of a, a sort of drop in land land prices, it's essentially a place where p- 
people are buying land as an opportunity to experiment uh, and kind of have a go at winemaking. You've got some really cool producers coming into this space. There, that, there are some cool ones, actually, yeah. and some real, <clears throat> some real uh, household names from other regions. So just as an example, um, you know, Michel Chapoutier from the Rhone, uh, he produces some amazing Northern Rhone and Southern Rhone uh, wines, um, has now bought some holdings uh, in the Languedoc and is producing some really uh, affordable um, but delicious wines. And then the same with another, one of our favorite Burgundy producers, Anne Gros. Yeah, yeah. She's just bought um, and started doing up a, uh, a vineyard in uh, Minervois, which is a small region within the, the Languedoc. Um, and again, it just shows, you know, okay, it might have historically been sort of uh, high volume, lower value. Um, there is actually some really good wine being produced there. And for the savvy consumer, it can represent exceptional value. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I think that's sort of, we'll get, get on to <clears throat> what this wine is, is in a bit, but I think it is that. It is exceptional, exceptional value. Um, so the, the Languedoc can essentially be split into three main, three main areas. There's the, there's the Ord, there's Aero, and then there's Guard. And within that, there's 23 AOCs, and they produce predominantly red wine, but also white wine, sparkling wines, rosés, and sweet wines. So it's like a real sort of higgledy-piggledy mix of and, like, yeah, so much going on there. And that's represented in the grape varieties as well. I mean, red, you've got, you know. Yeah, so red, Grenache, Syrah, Mouvedre, Carignan, Sasso, Merlot, and Cabernet. I had to write all these down because there's so many, I yeah. don't remember them all. And then uh, on the whites, there's Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Grenache Blanc, Bourboulon, Picpoul, Roussin, Marsan, Viognier, Claret, and Vermentino. Yeah, just, <laughs> just, 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 just to make it uh, even more confusing, they just chucked in an Italian one at the end. Just to <laughs> yeah, I know it's yeah. it's it's, uh, it's quite rogue that, isn't it? It's quite yeah. rogue. But I, I think there's a lot of um, there is just a lot of that in the Languedoc. You know, it mm. is a bit rogue, and there are uh, uh, vast differences in um, you know quant- uh, quality across the area, and that's kind of you know quant- uh, quality and great varieties and that's i guess what it makes it so interesting from a wine consumer perspective because if you start to dig into it you can find some really really cool stuff yeah that is and essentially all, represents and also value. when you when you get a <clears throat> bottle it's each there's quite a lot of differentiation between some of the different bottles that you're going to find uh, and there's always like a bit of a surprise and i think that's partly to do with the grapes also partly to do with the fact that it's such a what vast expanse area. of land yeah that you know it all comes in different shapes and sizes yeah yeah exactly um, well, I think just to kind of contextualise a little bit of history um, for the for the Languedoc, um, unsurprisingly, like much of France, um, winemaking goes back a long, long way. So v- vines can sort of be traced back to the region uh, to 125 BC. Okay. So they, they've been they've been they've been kicking around for a, for a long, old time. Um, and essentially, there's there's kind of two key things. This is this is a real synopsis here, but there's two key things that happened in the history of the Languedoc that. Can, sort of will ex- help explain where it is today. So essentially in the 17th century, a canal was built that allowed access from the Atlantic all the way through to the Mediterranean. Okay. And obviously that's just, you know, helping uh, industrialize the area, bringing in trade and, you know, uh, sort of bolstering the economy from that sense. And the other thing, a fair while later, about 100 years later in 1855 and 1856 is that a railway was built from Languedoc, one stretch up to Bordeaux mm. and the other stretch up to the north of France via Lyon. And again, the significance of that is that it was opening up access to the um, more more populated northern areas of France, promoting trade, 
helping grow local economies and all that kind of thing. So those two two things are really, really key to the sort of the history of Languedoc. As it was all going, it was all then going very well in the 1850s. Once this railway was built, um, sort of quality was improving in the area. And then much like, uh, you know, the rest of Europe, Phylloxera hit in about 18. 18- 60s so yeah. just after this had happened and for, for those who because yeah, we did we explain should... in another episode but for those who just don't know what phylloxera is mm. um it's essentially uh kind of like bug uh yeah it's like a little it's a little mite insect uh that goes around killing vines and what basically because it destroys was, the root system of yeah. the vines and there's no uh, there's this sort of at the time there was no way that you could you could fight against it yeah and there was no resistance in the plants and so what happened was is that a lot of the vineyards were wiped out um, and then they brought in American rootstock, which was resistant to it, um, to basically ensure that the vines could grow again. And actually most of the old vineyards that you see, you see some pre phylloxera vines, but a lot of them are still built on American rootstock, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a mental story. I know it all happened a long time ago, but phylloxera is a concept just, yeah, yeah nuts. Um, but yeah, sorry, just getting back to it. So in the 20th century, because of what happened in phylloxera, most of the winemaking was done by sort of local co-ops rather than individual merchants. They were uh, rather than individual winemakers. And they were all focused on um, quantity over quality. And what we had is sort of a, uh, a real surge in the, in the supply and how, how much wine was produced, but a real lack of focus on how good that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it essentially led, uh, again, this is sort of skipping across sort of, you know, 80 plus years of history, but it essentially led to a real disconnect between um, you know, supply and demand. It was just an oversupply of crap wine. People weren't wanting it. And what it actually did is it kind of dropped land prices. Um, and, and the prices of the wine. And the prices of the wine, which affected, you know, it's one of the other reasons why, you know, small independent growers were, were basically, um, basically non-existent. And then in the 1970s, the government basically introduced a vine sort of pulling scheme where essentially they they subsidised the cost of reducing supply across the region they told farmers to pull up their vines in areas that weren't considered the best you know for for producing wine essentially decided to put their efforts into focusing on growing wines in quality areas where you know they could yeah increase the cost and there wouldn't be this massive disconnect between between supply and demand um so that's a little bit of the history um i think it sets the tone actually for why now the languedoc's quite exciting yeah because if it weren't for some of that slightly more challenging history of oversupply and price reduction, you know, perhaps it wouldn't be such an inviting area now for some of those awesome producers that we were talking about to actually really go for it mm. uh, and use it as a place for experimentation, but also to create some really affordable wines made by producers that, you know, are sort of next level collectibles. Mm. Um, so I think that's really exciting. I guess that's a pretty good segue onto the wine that we've got today and the producer. Yeah, really, really cool segue. So, this is um, this is a, the second wine or the, the entry level wine yeah. um, of Mas de Domas Gasac. So they're they're based in Ero, um, and they're they're in Gasac, and they're located in a valley. Essentially, this producer um, has a real, real cult following. Um, their sort of vision they they bought the vineyard in nineteen in the nineteen seventies, and their whole thing was about vision, enterprise, passion and pride which i feel mm. like feel like you've, you you've got to love um and it's it's been referred to as the grand cru of the midi and that's just the, the south of france because this producer has 
uh, over the course of what last 50 years gained sort of such a cult following and status in the region they're kind of seen as the the the, the pioneers of, of of sort of the languedoc today. yeah um and that's because of two well partly because of two two main reasons so First is a microclimate of where they are. They're located very close to sort of mountains and also right next to a river. And what that does is keeps their, their area of where they are really quite cool. So they've got this really cool microclimate. Because if you think about south of France in the summer, right, Mediterranean climate, super hot, super, super dry. Um, so you do have um, a lot of heat pressure and stress on the vines. But the proximity to the river and to the mountains really helps keep the, the, their the local area cool. And the second thing that's really um, interesting about this, about where this producer is located, is the terroir. So they've essentially got very fine, powdery red soils, red glacial soils that to this day, they're largely unexplained as to why they're there. But the, the big thing about it is that they're very similar to the soils that can be found in some top sites of Burgundy. The soils are deep, which means that the, the, the roots of the vines have to work really hard for nourishment. The, the um, topography means that the soils are well-drained, so water doesn't sit there, leading to sort of disease um, in the vines. And also the soil, we, we will talk about this in another podcast episode as well, the, the soil is really poor quality, which you wouldn't have thought is kind of not what you yeah. necessarily want for vines, but actually you do because it really stresses the vine. It forces the vine to, to sort of you know, survive, re- work really hard for survival, and it leads to a lot more aromatics um in in the grapes and ultimately the wines that you you get from that um and this producer uh really cool thing about it is they're also first certified organic estate in the whole that's of the what we like world. to hear yeah really really cool um yeah and we should say this 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 is available from um we bought this from noble green wines um and it retails for 13 pounds 90 which yeah. is just exceptional value um and you know by default it's very much sitting in our good value um, category for 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 this episode. I've ju- I've just had a little uh, mm. sniff yeah, and a, tried it, yeah. sniff and a taste, and yeah, it's really nice because the blend actually and the percentages we we actually couldn't finalise just via researching online, but it's got high proportions of both Viognier and Chardonnay at the very least. Yes, um, yeah. and <clears throat> I think it's really interesting because on the nose you kind of get some of those Viognier notes which are kind of a bit floral, quite rich, but then there's also this sort of um, slightly nutty character to it, um, which I guess is probably more the Chardonnay. Um, but then there's also this sort of lime and grassiness going on, um, which I wasn't really expecting in it. Um, but maybe that's some of that cool climate or cooler aspects of their specific location coming through. Mm. Uh, and then on the palate, it's just really, really dry. And it's kind of reminding me of, you know, a picnic uh, in the summer. Like, it would just be really, really nice, you know. So if you're going to Wimbledon this year, get 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 your reserved de Gassac. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think it'd be it'd be uh, it'd be great wine for that. <clears throat> great wine for for dinner parties. Um, and just just coming back to what you were saying about us not being able to work out the the, the blend. There's sort of various conflicting accounts online about, um, you know, what grapes are actually in the wine. It, it doesn't it doesn't say on the label as far as we can see. But on the on the uh, Dalmas Estate. They grow 40 different grape varieties and they have essentially rare and uncloned vines from places like Israel, Portugal, Switzerland, uh, Armenia and Madeira, which lead to essentially really unorthodox blends and really unique, unique wines. But perhaps that's got something to do with the fact that we can't actually work out what, what's in there because just, they just grow such a wide variety of, of, of grapes. 
Because because that is quite crazy that their main wine, which you know is the sort of wine that you find on uh, the wine list of sort of the top restaurants, you know, mm. any lots of really really serious wine. Where retails for about 50, 60 quid. Yeah, it's quite crazy that you know the exact blend isn't actually uh, publicised or, or, or known. So mm. I think that's actually really really cool. Um, and also, I guess it's very representative of the Languedoc, whereas there is a certain element of um, of randomness there. Um, but yeah, I think it's a wine that we, we both really like, represents a really good value. Um, but I suggest we move on to the next one. I'm happy to kick us off with that. Um, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Luigi yeah. Maffini. So yeah, so our next wine uh, is a red wine. Uh, it's from Italy um, and it's from the region in the far south called Campania. Um, and it's... 100% Aglianico, which is an indigenous grape variety um, to Italy. And it's by a producer called Luigi Maffini. And we got this one from a wine match called Lee and Sandeman. Uh, and I think it retails at about twenty two fifty. Yeah, um, And it's really more in our wacky and wonderful camp. Because if we're being really transparent, uh, Aglianico wasn't um, a grape variety that we've tried um, a huge amount. We'll come on to that in a second where we first tried this wine. Um, but just to situate where we are in the world, I mean, Campania is right in the south of Italy. Um, if you were trying to get there, you could fly into Naples airport, yeah. uh, which probably just sets the scene <clears> a little bit. And it's right next to the Amalfi Coast, where no doubt you've seen hordes of Instagrammers, uh, you know, snapping some nice photos with Aperol spritzes mm. uh, and, and and being stuck in traffic jams. No, I'm joking. Um, but- yeah, it's sort of usually associated with uh, yachts rather than winemaking, if yeah. you were to say Campania. But um, actually, yeah. it's it's yeah, winemaking, yeah. winemaking hub, and it, it's really be- just, just on this. We we've both had the privilege of going um, into southern Italy, uh, and I, I did get the fortune of going to the Amalfi Coast, and it is really really stunning. A couple of highlights that I'd advise doing if you're there. One, there's this really cool walk that you can do, um, and it starts from the sea, uh, and it's called the Walk of the Gods. And you walk up this quite big mountain, uh, you know, the knees start shaking because it is quite a long trek. And then what's quite cool is you pass along these like different highlights that are really beautiful. Um, so one is this picturesque white church, uh, really minimal, um, almost like looks like it could be on a Greek island. And it's just so, so beautiful. Um, yeah, I don't want to get into my uh, religious viewpoints, but um, <laughs> if you stood there, I can see why you would believe in a God because uh, it is really beautiful. And there's also this lemonade stand where this woman uses these massive Amalfi lemons uh, to concoct fresh lemonade for you. And if you do that in the summer, which I unfortunately did, I can tell you the lemonade is, is most welcome. So, um, so for anyone going to the Amalfi Coast next summer, can you promise that she's going to be there? Oh, serve she Serve them will. lemonade after that. Yeah, yeah, she will. She oh, will. Really? Okay, okay. She, she will. Cause I, um, what are her opening hours on Monday to Friday, nine to five? Yeah, I mean, if she closed, don't hold me accountable. But... Um, so, so yeah, that's one thing you've got to do. And then the other thing you've got to do if you're around there is there's uh, an amazing restaurant that I went to that's just one of those sort of like, uh, you know, it's very famous, but it's called La Scolia. Um, and it's just a really, really beautiful restaurant. Um, and they do amazing uh, pasta, Italian food. They've got an exceptional Italian wine list. Um, but it's just well worth seeking out if you're up for a blowout lunch. Uh, and if you're having one thing, the courgette pasta is amazing. What, what is it like a local little restaurant? Or is it quite a serious establishment? It, do you know what? It comes across relatively local, right? But it, it, in the sense that um, you know, it's just got like wooden floor. Uh, it overlooks this. Like, it's on like almost like a pontoon but mm-hmm. onto the sea. 
um, overlooking this unbelievably crowded pebbly beach. Um, but it, it is like relatively like, like it's, it, it's clearly very nice. I mean, there's, yeah, yeah. there's, there's lots of people ordering like massive fish and things yeah. like that. Um, but yeah, if you're having a blowout lunch, definitely highly recommended. Um, but back to the Aglianico. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we first had that, um, together and I think you were the one who found it. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I, I actually went into Lee and Sandman looking for something cool. I, I don't know if they'd sent out an email or something. Um, but I, I had it in my mind, um, before uh, that was it. We were doing, um, a slight sort of theme of tasting and I wanted something that was essentially good value, but also different that I hadn't had before. Aglianico, you know, very much fitted the bill. Um, so I picked it up. Uh, yeah, picked it up from Lee and Sandman. We had it, we had it later that weekend. Essentially, I think that night we were trying six other wines or so, maybe maybe more. We actually had loads of wine that weekend. But it was a real standout in amongst all the other stuff that we were trying. Um, and yeah, not a great that I've had before, knowingly, Aglianico. And I just thought it was really, really nice. Um, and when we were thinking about the podcast, I was like, we just definitely need to get it on. Yeah. Um, well, I'm happy, I'm happy we have. And, and also you persuaded me. Because, um, yeah, it's a, it's a hugely enjoyable wine. A bit on Campania, I guess. Um, it's broken into sort of five subzones. Yeah. Um, the most famous of which is Avellino. Uh, yeah. And then there's which is right, right in the centre. Exactly. Well. And um, there is a couple of indigenous grape varieties that are grown there that are white, uh, Greco di Tufo, uh, and uh, Fiano. Yeah. Um, and there's another one called Falangina. Hope I'm saying that yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> I actually avoided saying that because I, yeah, I didn't okay. want to get. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't I think it's Valentina. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, actually, Fiano Davolino, just before we get onto the reds, mm. Um, mm. is actually really, really a good one to look out for. Can represent really good value. Um, it's slightly like honeyed, uh, peachy, uh, but I've had a couple. And if you're in Italy in the sun, it's like really refreshing, really delicious. So is Greco. Um, as well. well let's get let's get one on we we should actually it's okay we'll we'll, it, we'll flag that uh, mm. for a future episode because because we should um and then the reds are all aglianico i think in the region yeah aglianico's the ag, there, there are other grapes but aglianico's seen as you know the the, the, the best of the lot really yeah, yeah. best of the lot and then luigi maffini uh who's the producer um they set up shop in 1996 i think so apparently um apparently in the 70s but they didn't really i don't think quality was there until 1996 um so there was a, I, I don't quite know what happened okay. in the interim but i you know i guess if they were planting you know planting vineyards it's going to take a while for them to okay okay find their feet as a as a producer and everything but um yeah really really cool they're on the coast uh, they're they're on the coast of Campania and I actually went on their website and honestly it looks insane their vineyards they're sort of on this quite steep hill and then when you overlook the vineyards, you just have the Amalfi Coast in the background. Ooh. It's like, yeah, yeah. You have a look if you haven't already. Honestly, it's, you look at it and you're just like, fuck, that's, that's a place that maybe, I'd love to visit. Maybe, maybe we should. Maybe we should. Yeah, definitely. But um, yeah, so um, vines planted in the 70s, properly started in 1996. This is uh, uh, the, the um, vineyards, all organic with a focus on biodiversity. And that's been their sort of ethos since inception. I think, you know, their, their love of the land is the sort of their primary fo- focal point. And they see that, they see the land as their first home and their sort of, mm. you know, custodians And, and they're locals because they studied, uh, yeah. from memory, enology in, in, uh, and winemaking in uh, Naples. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you, yeah, if, if someone knows the local, the local vines, it's them. Mm, mm. 
Yeah, precisely. And I think the other thing to say about this is that obviously, if you think about the Amalfi Coast, it's really bloody hot. Um, these guys are reasonably high at about 350 meters of altitude, and obviously right next to the coast. So it's that altitude and proximity to the coast that um, you know keeps freshness in the wines and means that the um, the, the territory is slightly cooler than you know perhaps further inland, where you just get sort of baking sun and none of the, none of the coastal breeze. Um, but what's it like? Well, I'm just giving it a little, a little, a little sniff, and do you know what? It's it's really, really lovely. It's actually different, uh, a bit different to the that I remember when we first had it. Mm. Um, but it's you know slightly spicy, but it's got that lovely sort of like cherry fruit. Mm. Um, and actually, given how I mean, I guess my fear when I try some of the Southern Italian reds is that they're very pleasant, but they're often very fruity, um, a bit stewy, maybe. Yeah, a bit stewy, which isn't necessarily always my thing. Um, but this you can tell is quite lifted, uh, and it's got a lovely fruit profile. So yeah, on the whole, um, my initial, uh, instinct with it is that, that it's going to be really, really good and definitely, you know, it's a great, great showcasing of sort of why people should experiment mm. and not just stick to the sort of standard grape varieties, um, that we go for, like, you know, say Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, mm. um, because there's also great wine everywhere. And I think, you know, that's where Italy just brings so so much joy uh to the wine world because there's so many indigenous grape varieties like this that there's always something wacky and wonderful and different to try um mm, mm. for people so i'd highly recommend trying this but also um going out there and just exploring uh italy for what for, for what it is mm, mm. yeah absolutely i think um yeah as, as i mentioned it was <clears throat> one of the standouts in the six or eight that we tried um that night it's very sort of cherry blackberry but it, it's fresh. It's not heavy. It's not, um, it's not sticky like some uh, Southern Italian reds can be. That's probably a bit, a bit harsh, a bit of overgeneralization. I might get in trouble. But um, yeah, really, 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 really good. And for, it is in our Wacky and Wonderful camp for this week by default of it being a grape that's, I would say, not that well known and certainly wasn't known to us until a couple of months back. But um, it's still great value at 23 quid. Yeah. 100%, 100%. It's actually got a bit of tannin as well. Um, speaking of tannin and something maybe a little bit stronger, mm. let's get on to our um, final wine of the week. So this is, again, um, Italian red wine. Um, it's from the region of Brunello di Montalcino. Um, it's by a producer called Mastrogiani, and it's a 2013, 100% Sangiovese. And we got this one um, from Honest Grapes. They sell... Um, a couple of different vintages um, of this wine. Um, so we've got the 2013 here, um, but they've also got the 2015, I think, um, and a couple of others. So d- no need to stick to the 2013. Um, give them all a try. In fact, the 15 is also an exceptional vintage. And I think, you know, sort of typical price range, depending on the vintage, is somewhere between about 50 and 70. So this is definitely in the fine wine camp. Um, and a couple of weeks or a couple of episodes ago, um, we tried a very traditional classic Brunello from an amazing producer called Padaletti. Um, and it was absolutely stunning. Um, and today we've obviously got another Brunello, but what we want to do with this one is just tell a bit more of the story um, about the post-war history of Brunello. Um, and I think that will set the context for this wine up quite nicely uh, and explain why it's an interesting one to try. Mm, mm. So, so happy to, to shoot away. I'll just yeah, do yeah, a little you're, bit. Of, you're, you're the history guy. Yeah, yeah. I'll do, I'll do a little <clears> bit of dates. And, and no, I don't know. You, you did the, the, the gas act justice. Um, <laughs> but we'll, 
we'll just do a little bit of dates and then and then get into some nice conversation on it. But essentially, um, you know, in the 1950s, I mean, Brunello's one of these wine regions now that everyone knows, everyone loves, and it's on, you know, all fine wine lists. But in the 1950s, it was still a really small concept. Sort of 10 to 15 producers were producing grapes from Sangiovese Grosso, which is the clone of the grape that historically uh, made um, Brunello, mm. Brunello wine. Um, and what happened was that the fame and the notoriety of the region basically coincided with the development of um, Italy's first attempts at regulating and standardizing their wine country. And in 1966, they developed DOCs, which essentially are the same as French appellations. They basically categorize a wine region that has clear characteristics and standardize the grapes and winemaking techniques you can use to call your wine uh, part of that DOC. Mm. And to try and essentially improve the notoriety around it and promote it as a, as a region, as a wine. Yeah, you get like a brand and a stamp. Yeah. And I think also you set sort of a minimum quality threshold level. Exactly. Um, which then obviously lifts everything up. Um, and Brunello was one of the first of those DOCs that was created in 1966. And along with that came attention where farmers and people from abroad wanted to start buying the land and planting grapes. And with it came some of the big names from Tuscany, uh, such as the Antonori's, uh, who produce, you know, Tignanello, uh, Solaya, some of those names that you, you may or may not know. And then uh, the Frescobaldi's as well. And then also from abroad, um, so the Americans, an American family set up Castello Banfi, um, which is quite a notorious uh, American uh, Brunello producer. And what sort of shows the uh, sort of fact that symbolizes the the growing interest in Brunello is the fact that the hectares um, went from in 19, I think it's 67, um, it was about uh, sort of 76 hectares of vines were devoted um, to, to Brunello production uh, in 1967. And then by, I think it was 1988, um, it goes all the way up to 875 hectares. So that growth is like, pretty extraordinary. Mm. Um, yeah, like 10 to 12 times in the space of 10 years, basically, or whatever it is, 20 years, yeah. Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. So it massively expands. And I guess with that, it has some pros and cons. I mean, the pros namely being, and their pros are really important, that one, it brought untold cash flow to the wineries, um, enabling them to grow the local economy, employ people, all of which is really, really important and, and really shouldn't be forgotten when you discuss the history of Brunello. Uh, and I guess also it improved the accessibility. It created an export market for it, uh, which is probably why we've got it on the table today. So we're, we're, we're the lucky ones benefiting from it all. But I think it also brought along with it some cons, uh, which is probably going to be a, a good discussion for Ben and I. Um, and I'd say those cons sort of threatened or challenged exactly what Brunello is because it introduced some perhaps dangerous winemaking, winemaking viticultural principles. And we'll go through some of those just to give a quick explanation, some of which were to do with location of planting the land. Um, so traditionally, a lot of the uh, historic Brunello producers were on top of the hilltop of Montalcino and planted at relatively high altitudes. And what's important about that is that to to balance the fruit and the tannin that's in Brunello, you need that perfumed fruit and the acidity coming through. And the altitude goes a long way to sort of helping that come together. Um, 
And what we got and what we saw is that as people started planting uh, more and more, they actually started planting on lower altitude plots and therefore a different style came through where they were a bit heavier, uh, a bit more tannic mm. and a bit more fruity without that amazing acidity. Yeah, particularly and, particularly further um, in the south. So Montalcino as a town, um, yeah, well, it kind of essentially sits in the middle of, of Brunello, basically. Um, but it, it's the, the, the northern part uh, is typically associated with higher altitudes and a bit of a cooler climate. And then in the southern part where it stretches down, it's flatter, lower altitudes and, and therefore hotter. And that's why when, yeah, it's, you know, uh, producers start expanding south, the change in the sort of wine style is so, so clear and apparent because you're moving from, yeah, high altitude freshness to sort of lower altitude, mm. slightly thicker, heavier, sort of bolder style of Brunello with less nuance. And when I visited, I had the misfortune of deciding to cycle around it with a good friend of ours. In, in, in midsummer, you in, should in say. In midsummer. Yeah. So all I can tell you is for anyone who questions the extent of altitude change in Montana, <laughs> I can tell you that it exists. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it created some serious uh, lactic acid in my thighs. Um, the second one then that was a bit of a change um, was then some of the winemaking and specifically around the use of oak and how it's used. And traditional Brunello producers age their wine um, in large Slavonian oak barrels, which are about, I think, 1,500 litres approximately. Yeah, they, they, they range in size, but basically they're big from yeah, 1,500 litres up to 10,000 litres. So they're, they're yeah, huge. Yeah. And then the new, some of these new guys started um, pioneering the use of new French barriques, and these barriques are much smaller in size. I think about 25 litres or something. I can't no, remember. Two, 225 litres. Oh, two, sorry, 200. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 225 <laughs> litres. Yeah. 25 litres. They actually yeah, just produce one bottle. Yeah, no, one bottle. No, no, no. Um, yeah, they, it's about um, 225 litres. So um, a much, much smaller thing. And often they're toasted, so it imparts a lot more flavour. And we've both been to a winery in Brunello where you can go there and experience the difference between the barrels and it is stark the contrast yeah yeah really stark so it's an estate uh estate in um in montalcino called uccelliera um relatively small um you know it, it's it's family run family owned um really really cool estate they make top wines but they use both yeah french and slovenian oak and they well i think we we didn't go together but the time that i went we got to try um different vintages from uh, Slovenian oak, and then at the end you try it from the French oak barriques, and the strength of the oak and the flavours that it parts onto the wine when you have it, you know, straight from barrel. It's like, it's, yeah, it's so strong. It's kind of impenetrable, and that's why a lot of people feel that using just French oak or too much French oak really impacts the nuance that you get with Sangiovese grapes, yeah. essentially. Um, and obviously, you know. Uh, the Celliera use French oak in a um, sparing way. in a sparing way, so that it adds, uh, you know, I guess, yeah, depth to the wine without um, imposing on the characteristics of Sangiovese. Exactly, it's it's complementing, not masking. Yeah, but I think some of those producers that came in and introduced them were using too much of that technique, and therefore masked some of those sort of core traditional uh, Brunello characteristics. Um, but yeah, highly advise going to Celliera. You have to go down a bit of a weird sort of rickety lane to get there. And it's pretty masked. Like you, you can't really find it very easily. How, how did you get down there on a bike? Because basically it's a really, it's quite a steep dirt track. Essentially, I was in a car when I went. 
So, and even that was just like, you know, it was really steep winding downwards on a road bike. How do you, were you oh, walking? I, I, it was a calamity. Okay. It was a calamity. I was, I was honestly just bumping up and down. Yeah. And then, you know, in your handlebars, like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, was, it was, it was like that. Um, but it was quite funny. Luckily, I actually made my friend go down uh, first, um, which, yeah. As, as, well done, Will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ben knows him very well, but yeah, it, he, he's the sort of, sort of pioneer, pioneer of the, the, the cycling gang, uh, of our duo um and yeah he 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 was he was leading the charge uh but unfortunately on this occasion i followed him um but yeah so that's uccellier and the, and then the third one is then the grape varieties and tuscany is the land of sangiovese um and brunello is always 100 percent sangiovese um but at around the time that um brunello started to gain a lot of traction the super tuscans um were becoming in vogue and were gaining a lot of attention via wine critics, getting great scores and therefore... And just to be clear on what a Super Tuscan is, for those that don't know, it's essentially a Bordeaux blend, typically that focuses... Bordeaux blend, grown blends grown in Tuscany. So things like Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot, you know, bottled in Tuscany, sort of emulating what you might find in Bordeaux, but the Tuscan version of that, basically. Exactly. And that was gaining a lot of then traction with consumers because they were reading these amazing critic reviews and then wanting to purchase them. And so what happened is, is some of the producers in Brunello's started devoting a lot of their vineyards towards international varieties like Cabernet or Merlot, uh, even some Syrah. And um, that shrunk the amount that they were planting to Sangiovese and perhaps the attention that they were giving to it. So what basically emerged was this almost two factions. You've got the very traditionalist uh, approach on the one hand, and then this slightly more modernist approach um, on the other. And the contrast in the wines is that one is has like bracing acidity, uh, tannin and kind of perfumed, perfumed fruit. The other, um, done in its worst examples, can be very tannic, far more fruit-driven and oaky, um, but without the sort of character and finesse that the acidity um, of the former brings. Yeah. And this sort of factionalism within the sort of producers um, resulted in, a brilliant uh, headline-grabbing name uh, called Brunello Gate, which is just now when you look back on it, um, completely absurd. Uh, I, I love the name, um, but yeah, Brunello Gate. And a journalist um, basically found that um, a couple of the main producers uh, had actually used international varieties in their Brunello bottlings, and we won't go into which producers they are because they produce some exceptional wine. Um, they were reprimanded. And obviously, given the fact that, you know, this is an amazing wine region that, you know, people pay a lot of money for, um, bought a lot of reputational damage and a lot of uproar um, across the world. Mm-hmm. And what I think is <clears throat> also just like worth saying what, what they had to do ultimately, or were you going to get onto this? Oh, no, no, you go. Okay. Well, so what they ultimately had to do, they had to work out kind of who had breached the rules and you used the Bordeaux blends in their, in their Brunellos. Um, what wines they'd, they'd sort of bottled as that. They essentially had to declassify 27 million either litres or bottles of wine as, and I, I, I don't know what to, I would assume, um, I, I don't know, could it be a Rosso or just, you know, some, some form of, uh, you know, Italian red. They had to declassify it from Brunello. 27 I, million IGT. bottles. Yeah, declassify it to IGT. Um, quite yeah. crazy when you actually think about it 
because they, they, they stopped production. They stopped the wine being released to market. Um, and they, they, they took it off to, they, they took samples of wines to, uh, off to labs to be tested, to try and work out what was in there. And I think ultimately when you've got, you know, lots of different producers, millions of different bottles, it's quite hard to work out exactly what's what, but yeah, they just had to declassify a whole load of wine. So in short, a couple of these producers were reprimanded. Um, and where that basically leaves us now is that actually perhaps it's led to a good situation whereby a lot of wine critics and consumer preferences have probably slightly shifted back more towards the traditional approach, um, which has meant that, you know, classic Brunello is still being produced uh, and in much larger quantities than perhaps it was, um, you know, in, in a sort of difficult period in the, the sort of mid to late 90s uh, and early 2000s. Um, and that means there's amazing, beautiful wine to be produced. But it also is worth noting that, you know, the modernists have introduced also some really good stuff that new winemakers are taking on and they're creating a bit of a hybrid approach, which is creating some really, really um, exciting wine that combines the best of both worlds. So we've got the traditional Brunellos and now we've got these hybrid producers who respect tradition, but are bringing in the innovations in a sensitive way um, while still producing great wine. And I think that sets the context really nicely um, for the Mastrojani um, because they're probably more on the traditional side, um, but they do use some slightly smaller oak barrels, not just the large Savonian oak body. Um, they're based in the south, uh, their vineyards in Castel Nuovo della Batti, and I've absolutely butchered that, <laughs> one, uh, but I didn't know how to say it. Um, so forgive me. Um, I think you almost just have to embrace it. You Castel Nuovo della Batti. Yeah, oh, there you go. There you go. You have to, you, you have to run with it and embrace, uh, uh, embrace it. Um, but their vineyards are a relatively high altitude, and of course, they're only using 100% Sangiovese. Um, which is which is key to Brunello. Mm. Um, so yeah, that sets the context and hopefully provides a, a nice little story and introduction to Brunello. Um, ben, what what, mm. what did you think of the wine? Um, uh, yeah, I I I love it. Uh, it's I I love Brunellos, um, and we've actually drunk a wine from this producer uh, before. So last year, Hugo and I had the 2012. We did. This is 2013. We had the 2012 last year. So had it before. Brunello, uh, for me, is an absolute favourite. I think it represents very, very good quality to price ratio. Um, and on the nose, you get sort of uh, like typical Brunellos, much like we described the Padaletti. You get sort of um, balsam, you can get strawberry, you can get a bit of uh, florality, uh, often a little bit of like sort of dried orange or spicy notes, which I definitely, definitely get in this wine. Um, and obviously, this is 10 years old, so it's, it's certainly you know, in its drinking window. I'd say, you know, Brunellos, you don't really want to drink them before they're certainly five years, well, certainly five mm. years old, five years, uh, well, they're only released five years after. But then five years, maybe even after Five that. years after that, yeah. yeah. So something something like this is is pretty much perfect, really, having it having it with a decade of age. Um, but yeah, that spicy, spicy fruit character, baking spices, bit of cinnamon, bit of like fig, plum, um, and slight orange uh, sort of, yeah, not dried orange notes as well. And on the palate, it's really, really dry. I actually, I actually prefer the thirteen to the twelve. Um, I agree. Yeah, we might have just had a, a, you know, a bottle that wasn't at its peak at that specific moment because mm. uh, we've only tried it once. It's a bit unfair, but I, I do prefer this thirteen. Uh, and I'd highly advise people checking out the fifteen and the sixteen, both both exceptional vintages um, that, that are very recently and and should be uh, on the market. I know Honest Grapes also sell the fifteen. Um, so yeah, yeah. I think. That that brings us to the end um, of this episode. Unless you've got anything else you want to say on the master journey, um, I don't think so. No.
Nice. Well, um, let's wrap it there. Um, anyone who's made it this far, thank you so, so much uh, for listening. Remember, um, you can find us on uh, all audio platforms, YouTube, and on our uh, social media. We're mainly posting on Instagram to keep people updated at the moment. Um, so do uh, like or follow the channel uh, on whatever your preferred channel is. And also give us a follow on uh, social media to stay tuned for updates. Uh, and if you've got any comments or feedback for us, just message us on Instagram and we'll try and get back to you and incorporate your feedback. Um, we'll be back next week, excitingly, um, with sustainable wine solutions. So if you want to hear about uh, a business that is creating solutions to make the wine trade uh, more sustainable, then that is your episode. Um, so stay tuned. But for now, thank you very much uh, and have an amazing week. <laughs>